Pastor John here. I just want to say thanks for spending some time with us. We would love to hear from you. In particular, we'd like to hear your prayer requests. There'll be a variety of ways to contact us available right at the end of the sermon. I hope you'll use one of them. Our sermon today is our Palm Sunday 2021 sermon, and it's three tiers. Now, we'll be in a variety of passages today, but we're going to start in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. So let's join our service already in progress. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Uh, today, Pastor John is going to speak about the tears of Jesus. Most of us are familiar with the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. But how many of us know that God weeps and why he weeps? I'm going to read to you today from Isaiah 16, and we're going to see the tears of God. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail. Mourn, utterly stricken, for the raisin cakes of Kirjahereseth. For the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sivma. The lords of the nations have struck down its branches, which reach, reaches to Yazair, and, and excuse me which reached to Yazair and strayed to the desert. Its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. Therefore I weep with the weeping of Yazair. For the vine of Sivma, I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Elea. For over your summer fruit and your harvest, the shout has ceased, and joy and gladness are taken from the fruitful field. And in the vineyards, no songs are sung, no cheers are raised. No treader treads out wine in the presses. I have put an end to the shouting. Therefore, my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab, and my inmost self for Kir Hariseth. May God add, add blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the understanding of his word. Please be seated. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 11. Uh, we'll be in 28 through 37. We're going to be in a number of different passages today. And while you're turning there, I have a confession to make. Sometimes I cry. Sometimes I'll cry at a movie. I, I know guys aren't supposed to do that, but sometimes I'll get wrapped up. Kelly and I'll be watching a movie, and there'll be a powerful portion of the movie, and I'll weep. Sometimes, sometimes I weep at commercials. Uh, and, uh, you know, the right commercial will get me. Sometimes I will cry during prayer. I, I've, I've learned that it, I get emotional sometimes when I'm spiritually, emotionally exhausted and can weep over the smallest thing. So, do you cry? Why? Why do you cry? So, I, I'm not looking for an answer right now. I just want you to think about that. And I want you to know that Jesus cried. He cried three times. And at least three times that we know of. So what would happen to Jesus that would make him cry? I want to take a look at that today. It's Palm Sunday. This is the day that we observe the triumphal entry. And I've done probably a dozen sermons on the triumphal entry. 
Um, and for me, I, I just get excited when I read about it because this is the culmination of Jesus' ministry. He's coming to Jerusalem. Expectations are high. There's a whole lot going on. But as, as, you know, for those of you who have been with us for a while, you understand that context means everything. And so the triumphal entry is just the beginning of what we call Holy Week. And all of the events of Holy Week, the week between the triumphal entry and the resurrection, are vitally important to our understanding of who we are as Christians. Vitally important to our understanding of who Christ is. So we're going to be looking at the context of Holy Week, that incredible week before the crucifixion is so filled with significant events. And so we're going to take a look at three of them. Three times that Jesus wept. And each one of them should have a profound impact on how we view him and how we view our relationship with him. So the sermon title today is Three Tears. And the truth for today, the thing that I want you to hold on to throughout this whole thing, is that Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps. He cries. Every tear that he shed shows a reason why he weeps, if we take a look at the context. So we're going to look at three tears and three reasons why Jesus weeps. In John eleven twenty eight through 37, we'll see that he weeps because he's there. In Hebrews 5, 5 through 10, we'll see that he weeps because he is aware. And in Luke 19, 28 through 44, we will see that he weeps because he cares. You like that? He's there, he's aware, and he cares. All right. <laughs> so let's take a look at this first tier, John eleven twenty-eight through 37. He's there. Now the context here is that Jesus has a really special relationship with Lazarus and his family. Now, we learn a lot about Martha and Mary. We don't learn so much about Lazarus, very little about him in there. But there's a biblical scholar named Alexander White, uh, who specializes in biblical characters. A stud, he's a student of, of biblical personalities. And he's been able to pull together from some extra-biblical sources, writings that were made around that time, uh, a, a picture of Lazarus. And so we find out that Lazarus was a very humble man. He was not particularly well-respected in his community. He was a servant who served and frequently suffered for others. So he, he never got the recognition that he was due for the work that he did, uh, but he never really demanded it. He wasn't after recognition. So the disciples would show up at, at Lazarus's house. Martha and Mary would be there, and Lazarus, Lazarus would wash their feet. That would be his responsibility. He would go out and cut the wood so that they could have heat, so that they could have their meals. Uh, he would serve them, and then at the end of the day, when everybody had gone to bed, Lazarus would sit and have a meal out of whatever might be left over. Then he'd get up early in the morning and start the whole thing again. In other words, Lazarus was a lot like Jesus Christ, perhaps as much as any human can be, and maybe Maybe that's why we find that there's a special relationship between Jesus and Lazarus. So, the, and the, the, the scenario that we're looking at here is that Lazarus dies. Family had called for Jesus when Lazarus was sick, asked him to come, they had faith that he might be able to heal him, but the Lord delayed. He waited until after Lazarus died. By the time Jesus gets on the scene, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Now, the four days are significant. 
because at the end of the third day is about when decomposition begins to set in. So when we talk about Lazarus being dead, he was dead, dead. There was no swooning. There was no, there was no chance that Lazarus was, was in there in some kind of coma or something. And so Jesus gets there. The funeral is in full swing. The mourners are wailing. The town has shown up. There's food floating around. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a show of incredible unity and sympathy. That's how funerals went back then. The whole town would come and grieve with Martha and Mary. So Martha goes out to meet Jesus. They have a few words, and even though there are some questions, the family is clearly comforted by Jesus' presence. Jesus is there. And then we see Martha do this in verse 28. She went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, we can talk all day long about what that moment meant. But here's the important part. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said then, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved them. Well, this is important. Jesus weeps. He's emotionally involved in, in Martha and Mary's grief, but he, 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 he weeps on the way to the tomb. And Jesus knew something that Lazarus' family did not know. Lazarus, at that moment, was in glory. Now, I, I don't want to get in a long discussion about whether it was paradise or heaven or whatever, but Lazarus was a believer, and Lazarus had gone on to, we're just going to call it glory right now. His death... His death was painful to those who loved him. They were grieving. They were hurting. But it wasn't painful for Lazarus. Still, the family's hurting. So is the town. And Jesus cries. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Well, what was he crying over? Oh, Certainly, he's not crying over Lazarus' death. I mean, he waited until Lazarus died before he came. So he's not sad that Lazarus is dead. Jesus knew he was about to raise him up. So was he crying over the pain that, of those who loved him, over the grief that they were going through? Perhaps. Jesus knows that death comes to everyone, but he also knows that death comes because sin entered the world, and he sees the impact that sin has on the people around him. Well, maybe that's why he cried. I'll tell you why I think he cried. I think he loves Lazarus. I think the crowd was correct. He loves Lazarus. So, he, he, he loves Mary and Martha. 
And maybe he's upset over their pain, but he also weeps over the fact that Lazarus is in glory. He is free from pain. He is free from sin. He's free from death. So he weeps because he's going to bring him back. Whoa. It's all part of God's plan. But Jesus is emotional and understands that at that moment, Lazarus is free and will now be brought back into a world where he will suffer pain and die again. And I'll tell you something, if what we know about Lazarus is true, he would be overjoyed to suffer a little bit in order to show the world the power of Christ. Oh, what a moment for Lazarus. He, the voice he hears is the voice of his Lord Jesus Christ. And when he walks out of the tomb, Jesus is standing there. He hears his Savior's voice. And he walks out, and the first one he sees is his Lord and his Savior waiting for him. Maybe, maybe with a tinge of sadness on his face. Maybe, I'm sorry I had to do this, Lazarus. This is for the glory of God. And Lazarus' obedience in coming back shows the glory of God to all those who remain behind. And it was incredibly effective. Rest of the passage, starting with verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And what we see from all this is that Jesus is there. He's present. He's there for the sisters comforting them, soothing them. He's there for Lazarus, maybe comforting him, promising, renewing, restoring, reassuring. Christ is there. If you've ever reached out to somebody who's suffering, who's grieving, you know there's nothing you can say that will bring comfort to them. But your mere presence means a lot when you're willing to sit and weep with somebody. It ministers in a way that we just can't explain. Jesus is there in that fashion. His first tear tells us that he's there. And what we need to learn from this is that he's there for you. He's there for you. Let's take a look at our second tear. Hebrews 5. He's he's aware. Now, the overall theme of Hebrews is the supremacy of Christ in all things. By the time we get to chapter 4, we find out that he's not only supreme, but he's also the great high priest. Chapter 5 tells us why it's important to view Jesus as the great high priest. Verse 5 says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son today, I have begotten you. That was God. 
So as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the one who is there, as we saw in our first here, is also a priest. But he's not just any priest. He is the great high priest. The priest of all priests. Now, the role of a priest is to care for and represent the people. He makes sacrifices on behalf of the people that he's in charge of. And those were all shadows. They all pointed to the arrival of the great high priest. Now we find out that that's Jesus Christ. The one who would care for God's people. The one who would make a sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. Now, we're probably familiar with that. We're familiar with the scriptures. But here's the hidden jewel in this passage. On his way to becoming the great high priest, we learn this. Verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience in that he suffered. So Christ called out. He cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the garden, in his flesh, Christ knew what was coming. And even though he knew the final outcome, he pleaded with the Father to find another way. There's a mystery in here. We can get into a long discussion about Jesus being fully man and fully God. But for now, let's take this on the surface for what it says. He cried in the Garden of Gethsemane. He begged the Father to save him from death. And the Father heard him. The Father heard him, but the answer was no. Oh, that's a tough one. You know, I think that we're encouraged to pray unceasingly, and I believe that there are a lot of folks that believe that because you pray, God is obligated to answer in your favor. That's just not true. Sometimes the answer is no. He answers every prayer. He hears every prayer. But just because he doesn't do things the way we ask him to do things doesn't mean that he's ignoring us or that he's forgotten about us or that he doesn't love us. Sometimes the answer is no. So what we find out from this is that Christ knows what it's like to want something. He knows what it's like to cry out to God for something and be denied it. He is aware of what it feels like to want something with every fiber of your being. Have you ever experienced want at that level? My kids, when they really wanted something, they didn't know how to express the depth of their want, so they would go, but I really, really want it. We've all had some experience in that area. Jesus knows what it's like to want something at that level and hear that he's not going to receive it. And the lesson that we, that we learn from this is that, that our disappointment, severe as it may be, is never a reason for disobedience. Isn't that what Jesus did? The answer was no. 
And he obeyed anyway, and we learned a lesson from that. So even as Jesus cries out, he can see the ugly, angry mob coming down from the Temple Mount uh, into the Kidron Valley where they'll cross it and walk into the garden and arrest him. He sees the answer to his prayer. And when they arrive, he doesn't throw a tantrum. He doesn't say, but I, but I, I prayed, I asked the Father to do this. Why is this happening? He goes peacefully. He submits to the Father's will. He looks around him and he goes, well, this must be the Father's will in this situation. And as a result, the, the suffering through the suffering that's involved in all this, through his willingness to go through the cross, we're saved. We're saved. It's an incredible demonstration of submission. And it all happens so that you and I can know that Christ is aware. He's aware that life can be disappointing. He's aware that it can hurt. He's aware that we can suffer. He's aware of what it's like to hear. Watch this. He's aware of what it's like to hear that God has a better plan than I do. And he loves me enough to carry it through. Second tier is he's aware. He's aware of your pain. He's aware of your hurt. He's aware of the broken heart that you might be suffering right now. He's aware of your disappointment. He's aware of how difficult it can be to be obedient to the Father. Here's our third tier. Luke 19, 28 through 44. He cares. By the time we reach chapter 19 of Luke, and, uh, and at the way I'm burning through Luke, we should be there in uh, sometime around 2035. By the time we reach chapter 19, Jesus is at the end of his ministry. And then he's about to enter Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And in our passage today, he's about two miles outside of Jerusalem. He's just the other side of the Mount of Olives, the, just the other side of the pinnacle of the Mount of Olives. He's about to crest that ridge and descend into the city. He just shared a parable with his followers and in anticipation of his arrival in Jerusalem. There, there's this high expectation. There's this, and there's this excitement about what's going to happen when he shows up. So verse 29 of Luke 19 says this. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, there, there, there's some incredible detail here. We're, we're familiar with this scene. But Jesus is being very precise in, in what he's saying to his disciples. And he knows that there are going to be some folks that ask about this colt, so there should be no question. So what we need to understand about this is that 
everything that's about to happen to Jesus Christ, he was aware of, down to the finest detail. He knew exactly how the entry into Jerusalem would go. He knew exactly how the week following it would go. There's no detail that escapes his notice. So in verse 36, it said, And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, you, you need to appreciate what's happening here. Jesus has been ministering for three years. He's had confrontations with the Pharisees. He's done miracles. He's done signs and wonders. He's had this incredible authority as he teaches. And people are trying to figure out who he is and how he fits into the big picture. And I'm sure there were people in the crowd that began to believe that, well, when he gets to Jerusalem, when he gets to the temple, everything is going to be made right. He's bringing us victory. He's going to vanquish the Romans. He'll join with the guys in the temple, and everything's going to be made right once they meet him face to face. This is all going to be fine. Let's celebrate victory is at hand. Not everybody thought that. Verse 39 says, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Then in in the middle of all of this adulation, in the middle of all of this adoration and worship, there is this moment. Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem in his moment of triumph. Everyone is singing his name, praising him, worshiping him. And verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps because he knows what awaits him there. He's not crying over the pain and the suffering that he's about to go through. He weeps over the people who are about to reject him and the fact that they will suffer eternally. He weeps because he cares. What does he care for? The most important thing in all of creation. He cares for their souls. Brothers and sisters, he has the same care for your soul. All the tears Jesus sheds apply to the folks in the first century. And they apply here today to you and me. So we see why Jesus weeps. In our passage in John, we see that he's there. He weeps because he's there waiting to comfort you, to receive you. 
to take you into his own. We see in the Hebrews that he weeps because he's aware. He's aware of all of our pain and all of our hurt. Aware of everything we've ever said and ever done. And still, he is there for us. And in Luke, we find out that he weeps because he cares. He cares more about you than you know. He cares for your soul. And where your soul will wind up. He cares so much that he's willing to spend eternity with you. Know this. Jesus weeps. We just saw it. He weeps when you weep. He celebrates when you celebrate. He takes joy when you take joy. And he's there for you. He promises he'll never leave you. That he'll never forsake you. And that he will join you in, in your hardships. He's aware of everything you're going through. He sympathizes with your hurt and sympathizes with your grief. He cares. He cares so much that he died for you. That he died for you. He cares about the little things. He cares about the big things. So much that he's willing to take you for eternity. So he calls us to come to him. He calls us to confess our sins. He calls us to call him Lord and Savior. Then one day, like Lazarus, those who do that, when you walk out of your grave, he'll be there for you. Reaching out to you. Aware of all your trials and all your grief. Aware of all your failures. Aware of all your shortcomings. Aware of everything that's in your heart. And he'll say, come with me. Stay with me. Love me as I love you. So as we observe Holy Week... Know this, that back in the first century, Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to endure all that to let God's love play out for those who receive him. To let God's plan be complete in our lives. So that you and I, so that you and I can be the recipients of God's grace and God's love. I cry. I cry all the time. I cry usually when something is hard on me. Maybe you do the same thing. But Jesus cries too. And here's the difference between Jesus' tears and our tears. Jesus' tears come not when things are hard on him, but when they're hard on you and me. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we... We ask you to invade our hearts today. Let your suffering and your sacrifice become a reality for us. Help us, O oh Heavenly Father, to see the magnitude of your love. To see the incredible thing that you've done for us and for your glory. Lord, let us never lose sight of the truth that you do all this as a revelation for your glory, a proclamation of your goodness. And we thank you, Father, that we become caught up in your plan to honor the only thing in all creation worthy of honor. That's yourself, Lord. Thanks that you've chosen us 
to be exemplars of your mercy, testimonies of your grace, benefactors and vessels of your love. We confess that we're unable to do any of this on our own, so we ask you to fill us with your spirit, O God. Enable us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us here today. Thanks for joining us on our line. We'll be back next week. Pastor John here again to tell you that we really appreciate your spending some time with us. Love to hear from you. You can email me personally with your prayer requests or comments at kavakas, K-U-V-A-K-A-S, at gmail.com. You can find us on YouTube at WBFVA. We're also on Facebook at Warrington Bible Fellowship. And we have a worldwide web site as well, WBFVA.org. I hope today blessed you. I hope you have a blessed week. God bless you. We hope to see you again.